Bethany Vaney was an enslaved woman who labored in the Shenandoah Valley. We know of her largely because, in her later years, after she had become free, she wrote a narrative of her life. And through that narrative, we can hear Bethany Vaney's voice. It is, shall we say, no nonsense. At one point, she notes that she gave birth to a daughter. Nothing sentimental, she just writes, several months passed and I became a mother. Then she addresses the reader. Now, she's not interested in talking to some abstract general reader. Instead, she addresses the particular kind of person she expects might be reading her book. And reading it, she seems to say, with a tinge of moral self-congratulation, or maybe just moral naivete. My dear white lady, she writes, in your pleasant home made joyous by the tender love of husband and children all your own. You can never understand the slave mother's emotions as she clasps her newborn child and knows that a master's word can at any moment take it from her embrace. And when, as was mine, that child is a girl, and from her own experience she sees its almost certain doom is to minister to the unbridled lust of the slave owner and feels that the law holds over her no protecting arm. It's not strange that, rude and uncultured as I was, I felt all this and would have been glad if we could have died together there and then. That was a long 19th century sentence, so it might be helpful to say that again. Upon the birth of her child, a little girl named Charlotte, Vaney wondered whether it would have been best if they had both just died. And that was before she was sold away from her child, before she was put on the auction block and possibly sent to the Deep South. Although Vaney's narrative makes one thing very clear, there was no way she was going to let that happen. I'm Brendan Wolf, editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we consider the life of Bethany Vaney. Unlike Henry Martin, whom we met earlier this season, she did leave behind her words and stories, and they are powerful, sharply cutting away the two-plus centuries that separate us. She tells us of her owner, Miss Lucy, who lived in the household of Lucy's brother-in-law. He frequently mistreated Vaney. Master Kibler was still hard and cruel, Vaney writes, and I was in constant trouble. Miss Lucy was kind as ever, and it grieved her to see me unhappy. Maybe it would be best just to sell Vaney. Maybe then she should not be so wretched. That was Miss Lucy's solution. One sense is that Vaney's solution might have been to encourage her brother-in-law not to beat her. White men such as Master Kibler were a constant danger, and yet Vaney appeared to meet them with courage and cunning. Miss Lucy found a suitable buyer, a man named John Prince. Before consummating the deal, Mr. Prince asked if Vaney would promise not to steal from him. The black woman scoffs. I answered that if I worked for him, I ought to expect him to give me enough to eat, and then I should have no need to steal. She told him he would hardly want her stealing the neighbor's chickens while she worked for him. Bethany Vaney was, especially given her position, a master negotiator. The deal went through. She even convinced Prince to purchase little Charlotte. And all was well for a time, at least until it wasn't. (music) 
Bethany Vaney was born enslaved on a farm in Luray in what is now Page County. That was about 1815. She was one of five children and never knew her father. Her mother died when she was nine. Her owner died about the same time, and Miss Lucy was his daughter. Vaney and Vaney's sister Matilda both went to live with Miss Lucy, who in turn went to live with her sister and brother-in-law. It was here that Bethany Vaney experienced what it meant to be enslaved. The violence, the alienation, the lack of control. Your life was not your own, which means at times it seemed not worth having at all. Vaney became a Christian, and she married a man named Jerry Fickland. Jerry had a different owner, though, a man named Menifee, who lived on the other side of the Blue Ridge. When his debts got bad, Menifee arranged to sell Jerry away. This meant sending him north to Loudoun County and confining him in a slave jail until his sale. Then he was chained together with other men, women, and children and marched south. On the way, the trader encouraged Jerry to fetch his wife. He promised that the two would remain together. Vaney warned her husband not to trust the trader, and Jerry fled to the mountains. The picture Vaney paints of her husband at this moment is devastating. The fasting and the fear, she writes, had completely cowed and broken whatever manhood or brute courage he might have once possessed. In time, the slave catcher found him, and when the white man called, Jerry, quote, mutely obeyed. Vaney and her husband never saw each other again. As it happens, Vaney was pregnant with Charlotte this whole time. Vaney never knew her own father, and Charlotte never knew hers. Bethany Vaney was owned by John Prince for a while, and it was good. As good as good gets when you're the property of another man. But then John Prince sold her to the same trader who had taken away her husband. Prince, we can be sure, did not see this as a betrayal. It was just business. He needed the cash. But for Bethany Vaney, this was an existential threat. It could mean permanent separation from her daughter Charlotte. It could mean a short, hard life in the cotton fields of the Deep South. It could mean putting her at the mercy of masters she did not know, masters whose unbridled lust she did know. McCoy was the name of the trader, and he intended to take Vaney to Richmond and put her on the block. I was well-known in all the parts around as a faithful, hard-working woman when well-treated, Vaney later wrote, but ugly and willful if abused beyond a certain point. Vaney had seen that look in her husband's eyes, the way he had mutely obeyed, and she vowed not to be that way herself. McCoy had brought me away from my child, and now he thought he could sell me if carried to Richmond at a good advantage. I did not think so and I determined, if possible, to disappoint him. She arrived in Richmond and was shut up in a jail. In order to impress potential buyers, a dressmaker clothed her in what she remembered as the gaudiest and most striking attire conceivable. She literally wore pink bows, a kind of ironic joke on the cruelty of her fate. Courage and cunning, that was how Bethany Vaney had always gotten by and how she got by now. Relying on tricks she had learned from old women, she ingested a poison that made her feverish and bilious. Her tongue was coated, her limbs swollen. She adopted an attitude to match, or at least as much as she dared. The ruse worked, 
McCoy couldn't sell her, and soon Bethany Vaney was back in the Shenandoah Valley. More importantly, she was back with her daughter. Bethany Vaney's owner, the part-time trader McCoy, accepted a job overseeing a rogue construction gang of free black men. He assigned Vaney to cook for them. One of those laborers, Frank Vaney, became her second husband. In 1915, Frank Vaney told the local newspaper that over the course of his life, he had married 25 women, of whom he could remember the names of 11. Bethany Vaney, he said, was number nine. The Vaneys negotiated with her owner so that she could hire out to work as she wished. She paid McCoy $30 per year and kept the rest for herself. They rented a house on the mountain. They had a son. But then McCoy fell into debt. White people's money problems were a constant fear. Debts led to sales, like the one that had taken her first husband away. God forbid you found yourself owned by a man like McCoy, who liked to gamble. Luckily for Vaney, she was working just then for two white northern men. She convinced them to purchase her and her son and take her north. They left for Rhode Island in December of 1858, and she fully intended to return for her husband, for her daughter, and her daughter's husband. Then John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry happened. Then the Civil War. Going south was too dangerous. After three years, Frank Vaney moved on to wife number 10. Her son died. But Bethany Vaney moved to Massachusetts and after the war reunited with Charlotte. And in 1889, she dictated the story of her life to a white woman, perhaps the very woman she addressed directly. My dear white lady, in your pleasant home made joyous by the tender love of husband and children all your own. What do you really know about this life, this world? Let me tell you the truth, Bethany Vaney seemed to say. And let me tell you in my own voice. Bethany Vaney's narrative is part of a history of antebellum slave narratives that were usually written by formerly enslaved people who'd escaped to freedom and then told their own stories. In the 1920s and 30s, there was renewed effort to capture the stories of the thousands of formerly enslaved people whose stories had not been published. It actually started in the 1920s and was being done by black universities and colleges. Like these, these people were already taking an interest in their own history and trying to document it. This is Joby Hill, a preservation architect specializing in slave houses. In addition to the slave narratives that historically black colleges and universities collected, the federal government got involved in sponsoring interviews. The Works Progress Administration was founded in 1935 to transition millions of unemployed people on Depression-era relief rolls back to work. As part of the Works Progress Administration, the Federal Writers Project was assigned to create state-level initiatives to provide employment for writers. In Virginia and many other states, that included sending writers out to conduct interviews with more than 300 former slaves. They were sent off to collect American life uh, histories and stories from people, and there's kind of a lot of background to that, kind of things you have to know about just how that was all set up. Just in general, the WPA discriminated against black workers. Only half of the states actually employed black interviewers. Um, Florida and Virginia 
had uh, primarily black interviewers. They were the only two units that did. So tell us the difference between uh, in 1937 or 1938, uh, a white interviewer or a black interviewer going out into rural Virginia and knocking on a door and finding an elderly, formerly enslaved person and saying, tell me your story. Why does that matter who the person is who's asking that question? Well, it matters because one, just the comfort level of these people. In some instances, the person doing the interviewing was the son of the person that had enslaved the person they were interviewing. So, I mean, there was a, what's called a big conflict of interest right there. You know what I mean? That's going to make an uncomfortable situation. And also, depending on the question, they're not going to say anything negative. By contrast, around the same time, Professor John Cade was leading students from two historically black universities in the collection of slave narratives. His interest in recording the accounts of ex-slaves was in direct response to the ideas circulating at the time that African-Americans didn't mind slavery. He was interviewing formerly enslaved people, and those questions were not as specific and a little more open-ended. So you got different answers from those people. So the questions they asked were, what type of slave were you? So were you a house slave or a field slave? And then the next question was, describe your home life to us, which that was a really well-worded question because the answers for the enslaved people that um, were, I guess what you call house slaves, that, you know, not, that were not working out of the field, they would describe their home being the main house. Slave dwellings were not always <clears throat> these rickety wooden shacks over the hill, but slaves often slept right where they worked, whether it be in the kitchen or uh, in the house or whatever. Yeah, because that's where they lived. That's where they worked. That's where they slept. That's where they ate. So they considered the main house their home. And as they say, slavery was everywhere. And enslaved people were everywhere because they were doing everything. And so, you know, they were living, yes, in the spaces where they were working, absolutely in the kitchen and wash houses because, you know, once the fire was lit in the kitchen, you couldn't put it out, you know, because it took a long time to start and you just constantly needed food. And so the cook was always in the kitchen cooking, so someone had to tend the fire. So they were living and working in the same spaces. Sometimes they had individual houses, like an actual slave house. Um, and But then they were also living and working in the main house. And so they too were there all the time, just like the white family was, because they were caring for the white family. And so that was their house. The main house was a slave house, because that's who was also living there. And, and that so, insight is derived in part, if I understand what you're saying, by a question on a survey that was formulated by a black person to ask other black people about their experiences. And this um, kind of um, empathy and common understanding of this experience to some extent created a often more insightful 
slave narratives uh, than government-created, white-written, sort of outsider perspective on this experience and then had those folks go interview. I mean, is is that right? Yes. I mean, and also, I mean, Cade was trying to capture what life was like, so the experiences of these people. And so it had fewer questions, and you could tell they were well-thought-out questions that were kind of more open-ended. So it would make you think a little bit about how to answer them versus the WPA ones, you know, it was a very long list of questions, and um, they just wanted kind of brief, quick answers to these things and move through it. With her project Saving Slave Houses, Joby Hill is making a national survey of slave houses in the United States. The slave houses I was looking at were the ones in the Historic American Building Survey collection because that was the only national survey that was done. And so for that master's program, you had to do a summer internship. And so I applied to do that internship with HABs, or the Historic American Building Survey. So there are 485 HAB sites with a documented slave house and 1,010 WPA narratives that describe their house during slavery. And there are five, there are only five of those that match. So there are only five HAB sites that can be directly linked to a WPA narrative. But I mean, I was excited to find five. I was, wasn't even sure I was gonna find one. So when I found five, I was like, woo! I was like, look at that! I was like, that's amazing! Yeah. <laughs> um, one is in Maryland. Um, and then one's in Alabama. And the other three are in Georgia. Um, yeah, so I've been to two of them. Oh, okay. So what does that mean to you? It just makes a difference because now, like, now you have, like, that story in your head and an actual person. And so when you're just kind of, you know, in the space, you can just, you know, you're like, this person was here. Because for Joby, the spaces are nothing without the names of the people who called it home. Architecture has always been interesting to me because it's about the people. I mean, that's why we have architecture. Buildings are built for people. You know, when I was in school, I also um, got degrees in anthropology because I was also fascinated with the people. So that's what's always been interesting to me is the people that lived there or, you know, wanted these buildings, something. For me, you can't take the people away from the architecture. So how do you find the people? I mean, how do you, you've gone out in the field, you've you found this slave dwelling, you've uh, inspected it categorized it, um, dated it probably. And so now how do you discover the lives of the people in there? Yeah, so that's that's the tricky part, but that's also the fun part. So there aren't a ton of historical records um, about enslaved people, but there are more than people think there are. The information you find about enslaved people is not where you would think you would find it necessarily because you have to remember that they were thought of as property. So you have to look for places and information about the property on a plantation. You'll find them in like uh, like account books, like when they're 
keeping track of how many animals they had, you will also find like lists of how many enslaved people they had. You know what I mean? So in things like that, you'll find names of enslaved people. So that's that's kind of the first thing I do is to try to identify names. Because once you give a name to someone and, you know, can put them in this house, then it makes it that much more important. I mean, these, these buildings were houses. In my mind, they're sacred places. You know, houses are really important to people and families, and that's what, that's what these buildings are. They weren't outbuildings. They weren't just, you know, another agricultural building on the landscape. They were, they were a house. Families lived there. People lived there. Babies were born there. People died there, just like in the bigger main house. You know, it's just smaller. And also, you know, it's much harder to tear down, you know, Callie's house than it is to tear down an old outbuilding. So once you actually give it a name and can say it was someone's home, it becomes that much more valuable. You invest it with real meaning. Yeah. So you can find names of enslaved people, like it's in different places. A really good place is in wills. Slave owners would give away, you know, enslaved people in their wills and their children, you know, their future children, which I always just find really interesting. If you have access to family records and things, like people kept names of enslaved people in Bibles. Um, and so that's where you can kind of start to find the names. You can check that with census records to figure out, you know, um, ages and things like that. But also a good place to look and learn is from descendants. African-American people, they, they know their family history. And so it's just whether or not they're willing to share it with others, you know, people outside the family. And so, but I've been contacted by some descendants of sites I've been to um, and, you know, they're really excited to share the information they've found with me because I can also help them and share the information that I have found. I mean, w w one of the amazing stories in the encyclopedia is uh, about the creation of this book, The Negro in Virginia, mm -hmm. which uh, was used a lot of these slave narratives. Yep. And there was a narrative of a formerly enslaved woman who was then living in West Point, Virginia. And she gave a story of being virtually tortured by her mistress for stealing a piece of candy. And this was included by the editor of the book in a chapter on punishment. And this editor was a, a black editor. And his boss was a white woman. And she read this chapter and said, well, that's not possible. There's just no way that uh, this young girl would be tortured and beaten and disfigured in this way. And she got in a car. It's in the 30s. And she drove to West Point, Virginia, and she knocked on some doors until she found this woman. And she saw her face permanently disfigured. She heard the story from her own mouth about what had happened to her. And she believed it. But what is scary is that we can't do that. Yes. We right. can't drive to West Point and find this woman. And in fact, the house she lived at is now an empty lot. 
we depend on all of these sources that then are imperfect because of course all sources are imperfect and we find ways to dismiss them because we don't want to face that reality yeah but but we have to if we don't then things things are just never going to get better these are the people that sacrificed contributed to and helped build and shape america so i mean they're part of history and we need to find ways to empathize with enslaved people and we need to find ways to um, accept their mechanisms for surviving being oppressed. When I do this research and I talk to other people, you know, people always bring up that, you know, talking about slavery is, is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for people. It was uncomfortable for the people that survived it, but they did. They survived it. We all benefited from it. So we, we owe them to talk about this because slavery and their lives is what America is built on. We're still de- dealing with racism and inequality and what they went through. And so if we, if we can't um, find a way to relate to them, then we're not going to be able to understand what's happening and be able to relate to what's going on in the world today. That was Joby Hill. To learn more about her research, go to savingslavehouses.org. To read more about Bethany Vaney and to find a full transcript of her autobiography, go to encyclopediavirginia.org. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast was produced by Miranda Bennett.